Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. This morning's news is extremely frustrating. At 11 a.m. on the morning of January 12th, 2017, a hastily assembled group of civic leaders held an impromptu press conference at San Diego City Hall. Just three hours earlier, the Chargers had tweeted out a letter from owner Dean Spanos announcing his decision to move the team to Los Angeles. Confident of at least two things. We're going to be fine. And the Chargers made the wrong choice. San Diego Mayor Kevin Faulkner was the first to speak at the podium. He had learned of the move only the night before and had been spending the previous weeks preparing for his annual State of the City address, which was slated to take place that very night. San Diego is a great city, and I'm certain that they will come to regret this decision. Faulkner didn't mince words on who San Diegans should blame for this outcome. And I asked San Diegans not to let the action of the team's ownership to ruin the well-earned legacy of the San Diego Chargers. The Spanos family may own the Chargers franchise, but our community, our San Diego community, is and always will be the rightful owner of the Chargers legacy. The passion that this city, this community has for this team, you're not going to get that in Los Angeles. You're not. You guys know that. Uh, I think everybody knows that. I, I saw it was, was it the LA Times today, the headline. We don't want you. Uh, pretty direct. Eventually, County Supervisor Ron Roberts took a question from the press, and in his response, he was overcome with one powerful, inescapable feeling, remorse. There were mistakes made, but it wasn't, the, the, even, even though they made mistakes, they, those two mayors thought they were doing something to help the situation. At the end of the day, they probably did the wrong things trying to do the right things. So, you know, this... <laughs> I hate this day. You know, it's just, uh, it, for me and my family, it's a big thing. I mean, there's a sense of community that that's what sports teams do, and it happens with the Padres, and that's what's so disappointing. We'll get over this. How did we get here? To the moment where politicians were weeping at the podium because of an outcome they theoretically had the power to change. In this episode, we'll look at San Diego's infamous pension scandal and ticket guarantee. How a series of small decisions over the span of decades snowballed into disaster. How those crucial mistakes prevented the city from playing hardball with the Spanoses and blurred the line of who actually owns the team. We'll also talk about the decline of the Chargers from Super Bowl contenders to basement dwellers and with the man whose name has forever been intertwined with the dysfunction of the organization. Our conversation with Ryan Leaf. I'm your host, Rafi Cantor. This is Bolted. Chapter 3, Time Bombs. Football might be over, but NBA, college basketball, and the NHL are in full swing. And the only place you should be betting on these sports is at betonline.ag. We talk a lot in this episode about the 1998 draft. Who was going to go number one or two? Was it Peyton Manning or Ryan Leaf? Well, this year... You can't even get odds on the number one pick because everyone thinks it's going to be Trevor Lawrence, Clemson quarterback, but number two was a bit of a mystery, and I'm seeing a lot of value in the Jets taking Panay Sewell, the Oregon offensive tackle. I'm going to lock that in at plus 750. BetOnline even covers awards, TV shows, and reality TV. 
BetOnline has hundreds of props with real-time odds on almost anything you can imagine, and of course, the 24-hour online casino. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. That's BetOnline.ag, BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. And now, back to the show. Last episode, we talked about the Spanos family, Alex and his son Dean, who have owned the team since the mid-80s and were criticized for not spending the money needed to compete while seeing the financial value of the team skyrocket. But when we talk about the teams we root for as fans, we use a language of ownership we simply don't for any other private business. Folks in Chicago are not walking around the city bragging when United Airlines has a great quarter on the stock market. And yet, it's kind of what we do with sports teams, right? We had a great game. We signed a huge contract. The language of we is powerful. It's infectious. This purely emotional stake we take in these private businesses can lead to sports teams getting special treatment from the public when it comes to stadiums. For more, here's economist Sam Young. We should start with the basic observation that people are fans. Sports are a big part of our culture, and in this way, the presence and enjoyment of a sports team is almost like a public good. In times when public money is used to help finance sports stadiums, the stadium and the team are often treated like public goods. But more than that, another big reason why cities or taxpayers are willing to provide public dollars is that they're paying for the right to have and retain a team's presence. With this word retain, I'm highlighting the fact that teams can move, which is important. At any given time, there are a few other cities that could be willing to pay to attract a sports team, if not the current city. And a lot of the ability for team owners to ask for public money rests on this tension between the fact that people are fans who enjoy having these sports teams and the fact that teams could move. The crux of this story hinges on those three words that Sam mentions, have and retain. This episode is a look into what about San Diego put it in a unique position where they couldn't have and retain the team. There's a pretty obvious issue that comes to the fore when a city starts offering public money for a stadium. It's public money. It belongs to everyone. Here's San Diego City Council member Chris Cape. When it comes to it, we are the eighth largest city in the country. We have a $4 billion budget at the city, so we are a big city. This is big city politics in that you have a lot of various interest groups when it comes down to different policy issues that you're looking at. Sam Young. The big theme here is one of opportunity cost and the way a stadium tends to wind up taking spending away from other things. That money needs to come from somewhere and that either means new taxes being raised or decreased spending on other things. So let's start by supposing the city doesn't raise taxes at all. There's very clear how the stadium will crowd out spending on other things. In this case, the money that goes toward the stadium needs to come from money that would have gone towards schools, public programs, roads, things of that sort. The assumption that the city wouldn't raise taxes to pay for something is a pretty safe one, because San Diego is unique compared to other American cities. Its citizens get a lot of things without paying for them. They want stuff, but they don't want to pay for stuff. And they, so as a result, they tend to elect people who say, we'll give you stuff and it won't cost you anything, and then kind of come up with these gimmicky ways of making that work. That's Professor Vladimir Kogan. He's an associate professor of political science at The Ohio State University and co-author of Paradise Plundered, a fantastic book on San Diego's governmental failings. Stingy voters tend to elect stingy leaders. I asked Professor Kogan what skills a politician needs to thrive in San Diego. But it's really people that have told voters, hey, it's not your fault. You know, you can have 
whatever you want. You can have all the services you want, and it's really not going to cost you anything. You can find all these efficiencies, um, and the reason why our predecessor couldn't do it is maybe they weren't smart enough, or maybe they weren't willing to take on a special interest. But if you elect me, you know, I'll give you more of what you want. When's the last time that you read your city's budget? Before I started making this podcast, the answer for me was never. They're not sexy, they're written in legalese, and in the context of this story, they seem to have very little to do with football. But anytime you drive on the road, go to the park, or God forbid have to call 911, that experience is entirely controlled in that city budget. And in a lot of cities like San Diego, the stadiums where their sports teams play are controlled by that city budget too. In this part of the story, Jack McGrory controlled all of that for San Diego. I came here in uh, July of 1973. I was a Marine Corps infantry officer, and I had just finished a 13-month tour uh, in Asia, and then I get stationed at Camp Pendleton. McGrory has this quintessential all-American story that you can hear deep in his voice. He interned for his home state senator, Ted Kennedy. He enlisted, and during his time as a Marine, McGrory got to serve on President Nixon's security detail at his Western White House in nearby San Clemente. And when McGrory was discharged in November 1974, he decided to stay. Uh, got a taste of San Diego and decided this is a great place to, uh, to stay and uh, have my career here. And uh, it, was just, it was great. I'm originally from South Boston and uh, went to school up in uh, upstate New York. And I said, I, don't, I do not need those winters any longer. I left Pendleton, my, my commanding officer said, uh, what are you going to do? And I said, oh, I'm going to go to work for the city. I'm going to be city manager of San Diego eventually. And he said, really? <laughs> and I, about 16 years later, I was city manager. City manager. It was an unelected position that at the time was the most powerful person in San Diego. For more, here's the voice of San Diego's Scott Lewis. The mayor was like a glorified member of the city council, got to preside over the meetings, got to give committee assignments and stuff like that. The city manager for a long time was the CEO of San Diego city government. And the council members were like the board of directors who got to appoint that person. And so the city manager had a tremendous amount of power. And McGrory was known as somebody who really made a lot of deals to keep things going. McGrory's job was to somehow make San Diego work when the people who hired him were elected on a faulty premise, that you can keep taxes low while still providing all the services that you want from your local government. We're the last city to have, um, to have free refuse collection and um, recycling. Um, we are the, probably the only major California city that doesn't have a tax on utilities. Um, our business tax is so low it's not even worth collecting. We're always going to have free parking on our beaches, even despite the fact you can go up and down the West Coast and you won't see that kind of thing happen in any other city in the, in, in the West. Uh, it's just um, we, the way we are. We, want, we expect to have um, a lot of good services and not have to pay much for them. The biggest hurdle to funding the government wasn't from a politician. It was a revolution that rocked California back in the 70s. We, the tax payers have spoken. We have made clear our goals. Now we are watching you. It is your responsibility to make Proposition 13 work. That was Howard Jarvis. His landmark California ballot measure, Prop 13, was the culmination of the anti-tax revolt that he led back in 1978. 
one of the unfortunate results of Proposition 13 is that um, it required two-thirds voter approval for uh, general obligation bonds. And then Proposition 218 in 1996 further exacerbated that problem by, by requiring any new tax uh, to be, be uh to get a two-thirds uh, vote as opposed to majority. And that really has hamstrung these kinds of kinds of capital projects uh, throughout the state. So why does this all even matter? Like for football? Here's Scott Lewis again. The single most important thing to know about why the Chargers left San Diego is that in order to raise taxes in the state of California for a special purpose, you have to get two-thirds of the vote of the people. And that's different than uh, Nevada, that's different than Indianapolis, that's different than Texas, Colorado. Every place, almost every place that has built a stadium with any kind of public tax contribution has done so with a minor increase in a sales or hotel tax or both, like in Texas, and they did not need two-thirds of the vote. The Spanos has claimed they needed public money to help build a stadium in San Diego. Well, Prop 13 was what sent everyone down this rabbit hole to try and find public money in ridiculous places. It makes it hard to get any revenue to fund the government in California cities, let alone stingy San Diego. And when local governments are giving people services without paying for them, it creates a giant, ticking time bomb. But let's pause for a moment. Pause from city government, from San Diego, from the Chargers. And let's take a road trip up Interstate 15, way up, hundreds of miles away from the sunshine of Southern California. There, on the edge of the plains in Great Falls, Montana, Ryan Leaf was trying to make a name for himself. It was, it was hard. Um, I, I didn't have a, a, I don't remember having a very uh, pleasurable childhood. Um, hated high school. But even though he didn't feel like he fit in, Ryan was one of the most impressive athletes Montana had ever produced. He had always been big. He weighed over nine pounds when he was born and grew to a six foot five frame just in high school. He was all state in basketball. And in his junior year, he won the starting quarterback job in football, leading his team to a state championship. You know, I didn't have a lot of friends. I wasn't very popular. I was super competitive. It rubbed people the wrong way. Um, I don't think if I wasn't that guy, I don't, I don't necessarily get out of the state. While growing up in Montana was tough for Ryan, there was one place he'd always enjoyed escaping to, San Diego. My aunt and uncle uh, are from Encinitas. Okay. And so I would spend summers down there. I'd, my, my mom would ship me down to her younger sister and I would spend time on, uh, you know, Encinitas Beach, Moonlight Beach there. And uh, he'd take me to Padres games and, um, and all of that, you know. First time I ever saw The Simpsons because Montana didn't have Fox. And <laughs> I watched The Simpsons when I was married with children. It wasn't a matter of if, but where Ryan would be playing college football. But his choice of Washington State wasn't a traditional football powerhouse. You know, I could have went to Miami. I could have gone to UCLA. Uh, Nebraska, Colorado, any of those those places at the time, but um, it was really about Mike Price and and what his vision was for me in that program, and and it was it was the best decision I made, and 
having not made many good decisions throughout my life, uh, I can always tend to go back and look at that one. Though Ryan was keen to point out, it wasn't just Coach Price that was able to mold him into a generational talent. I had great coaches. I had great teammates. I had uh, great strength and conditioning, great tr- uh, trainer when I was injured and had to go through a bunch of surgeries when I was in college. Um, you know, I had a team psychologist who worked with me uh, a lot every week, especially during the season. So, yeah, there was a there was a significant support staff there at Washington State that helped me deal with, uh, you know, with those things. The numbers speak for themselves. In his final year at Washington State, Leaf broke the Pac-10 record with 33 touchdown passes, while rushing for six more and throwing 11 interceptions. Leaf carried Washington State to play in the Rose Bowl, something that Washington State hadn't accomplished since 1931. What it did is it it made that year memorable, um, for sure, because it's something that we hadn't done in 67 years, and that's go to a Rose Bowl. And we won a Pac-10 championship, and we won all six games at home, and we beat all four of the California schools, which was huge for recruiting, which elevated Washington State forward. So five years later, they would go back to the Rose Bowl. It wouldn't be another 67 years later before they did it. Ryan Leaf was raw potential. Untapped, high-octane, ultra-competitive, and fully charged. At 6'5", 235 pounds, and with an arm that could clear half a football field on his back foot, Leaf was the platonic ideal of a pro passer. Pure football id. And he was demanding the attention of the NFL. Here's NBC San Diego's Derek Togerson. They were enamored with the arm and the size and the accuracy and with the measurables. Ryan Leaf's still one of the best draft prospects at quarterback you're going to find over the last 30 years. The biggest strong that kid is. Look at the he can throw the ball through a brick wall, and he can actually hit the brick wall. And here's Lee Hacksaw Hamilton. You know, when you looked at video, when you watched Leaf that last year and a half he was at Washington State, it was unbelievable. Now he was a big physical guy getting by on skill. But despite all the on-field talent, there was one critical hurdle that Leaf was yet to experience. There wasn't any pressure. You know, I never, I never had any pressure until I got to to the pros. You know, I was. It's the thing about growing up in Montana. Um, you know, no one expects you to do anything or go anywhere. No one expected anything of me or anybody from Washington State ever. You know, we were picked to finish seventh that year. So, you know, I I don't think I ever really had the expectations that were going to be placed on me and not be able to live up to them. I always exceeded whatever expectations were there, so it always looked better. Back in the Chargers front office, there was a different kind of time bomb that was ticking down. The team was coming off its first ever AFC championship, but the tensions were high. The relationship between the Chargers head coach Bobby Ross and their general manager Bobby Bethard had grown toxic. The man in the middle who was capable of mending the wound, Chargers owner Dean Spanos, was unable to do so. Nick Canepa and Kevin Acey. Dean had a problem with, with, with conflict. I mean, Bobby Ross and, and Bobby Bethard were not getting along, and he didn't settle, settle it. And, and uh, you know, I think, I think a, a, good, a good owner would have found a way to settle that, but he never did. He agonized over having to fire people. That's just one example of, you know, if you're going to run your own business, right, then 
you got to be the hard guy. And I don't think Dean was wired to, to be the hard guy. And though Bethard remained as the GM, the team had become the punching bag of the AFC West, going 4-12 in 1997 after Ross's departure. Lucky for them, there were two elite college quarterbacks in the 1998 draft, Ryan Leaf and another guy named Peyton Manning. Everyone knew that they would be selected with the number one and number two picks, and as the draft got closer, there were some indications that the Indianapolis Colts would be taking Manning first. John Gennaro, former managing editor of Chargers SB Nation site, bolts from the blue. A- anytime they tell you, like, oh, we, we absolutely wanted to take Ryan Leaf over Peyton Manning, they're lying to you. Peyton Manning, I think still, even after Andrew Luck, might be, like, the single most perfect prospect to ever enter the NFL draft. He was the, the Tim Duncan of his day for football and that you knew if you got this guy you're winning multiple Super Bowls over the course of his career. That was not true with Ryan Leaf. If Manning was going to go off the board first, the Chargers would need to be sure that they could secure Leaf no matter what. The problem there was the Cardinals were drafting two that year, right? And the Chargers were drafting three. They sent a whole bunch of stuff to Arizona, who the year before, two years before, had just taken Jake Plummer out of Arizona State in the, I forget the second or third round, and he was their starting quarterback, and he was actually playing pretty well. Remember in 98, the Cardinals into the playoffs under Jake Plummer. They probably weren't going to take Ryan Leaf, but they said, oh yeah, we're looking at Ryan Leaf, and then Bethard, I think, panicked, and we're like, we desperately need a quarterback. Take whatever you want. To move up one measly spot, Bethard had given up a king's ransom. Two first-round picks, a second-round pick, linebacker Patrick Sapp, and star kick returner Eric Metcalf. So even though a guarantee to pick Leaf was coming at a high price, there was an invaluable opportunity for the Chargers and Leaf to get comfortable with one another. You know, Bobby Beathard came and visited me uh, up in up in Pullman. Uh, of course, they were there at my workout. June Jones, who was coming in as the offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach, he was there. Um, I'd gone down for uh, some physical uh, testing at the Chargers facility. Um, a couple nights before the draft, uh, Mr. Spanos, Dean, and I had a dinner in New York, um, you know, talking about where we wanted to go, what our, what, what our hopes and dreams were in terms of, of the organization. And, and according to Leaf, everything was going to plan. Um, we were hoping for second because that meant I would go to the San Diego chargers. Um, that's where we wanted to go. It was on the West coast. We had family there. Uh, I, I didn't want to live in the, the cold in the middle of the Midwest in Indianapolis. I mean, I, I wasn't thinking about the right things. I was thinking about the beach, uh, babes, money. All, that's that's the things I was thinking about and playing football in the sunshine. That's So uh, I went to bed like at nine o'clock that night. I think we knew what, what was, you know, we knew what was going to happen the next day. With the uh, second choice in the draft, San Diego Chargers select quarterback, Washington State University, Brian Leaf. Well, I was just relieved, you know. I mean, I was just, I mean, it was a, it's a dream coming true, right? Um, it's never happened to somebody from where, from where I grew up or where I'm from. I'm, I'm not supposed to be there that night. I'm not supposed to be on that stage. I'm not supposed to be holding up that jersey. All the odds were against me. My family was there. Uh, still one of the greatest, greatest uh, moments of my life. I'll always 
always remember it fondly, no matter what. But while relief was setting in for Ryan, so was the one thing that he had truly never faced, pressure. And it was about as high as humanly possible. Here he is, Ryan Leaf, 16. Is the ceiling higher on him, perhaps? Well, I really believe, Chris, when you look back at this trade, San Diego moving up from three to two, five years from now, it may not look like Bobby Beathard gave up enough. This kid has... Leaf had been given the largest signing bonus in league history by the notoriously stingy Spanos family. And when you factor in the trade that the team had made to move up, the Chargers had mortgaged their future on Ryan Leaf. Everybody just assumed because the competition was so close on who would be first or second, a lot of people were in, uh, were, were not in, were in incongruent in, in, in terms of whether I'd be picked first or second. And now it looks absolutely asinine if anybody said, hey, I would have taken Leaf number one. Uh, but that's what it was. So I think it's a big reason why people consider me one of the biggest busts ever is because everybody assumed and expected that I would be terribly successful and maybe uh, be better than Peyton Manning as an NFL quarterback. Back at City Hall, Jack McGrory was going to have to get creative in order to keep San Diego running for its future. He had inherited his role at a tough time. There were numerous decisions made over dozens of years to cut taxes while giving more city services. Remember what Sam Young said earlier about cities fighting for the right to have and retain their sports teams? San Diego's personality as a miserly city meant that that right was already volatile. But a decision made just a few months before Ryan Leaf was drafted was going to take the kindling that was San Diego's finances and light a fuse. Borrowing from the city employees' pensions. And it was a shit show, you know, when you put it down to it here for a long time. Um, that was San Diego City Council member Chris Kate. He's describing the attitude at City Hall back in the mid to late 2000s when they were dealing with the fallout from one of the nation's worst pension crises in history. Pensions are the great bargain for public employees in America. Oftentimes, you'll be making less money during your career in a public sector job than you would in the private sector. But in return, you're promised a steady pension fund during retirement. Once again, Professor Kogan. Which is basically city employees get hired, they pay in a percentage of their salary, the city pays in a percentage of their salary, and then the pension manages that money, they invest it. And presumably if they invest it well, there's gonna be investment earnings generated every year that will help pay the cost of the benefits that the employees are promised. So when they retire, there's a pot of money waiting there for them. Public pensions are notoriously underfunded in this country. Moody's Investment Services estimates that across the U.S., public pensions are $4.4 trillion, trillion with a T, short. That's what's led some economists to give them an ominous nickname, pension time bombs. Here's former city attorney Mike Aguirre. He was elected as a reform candidate in 2004 in the wake of the pension crisis. The, the, the sine qua non, the, 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 the bedrock of, uh, of pensions is actuarial science. We have this many in the workforce and they're going to retire on this date and they're going to be getting this amount. You know, how much money are we going to need? And then we're going to have this amount in the bank and this going to earn this amount. As the U.S. economy expanded rapidly throughout the 80s and 90s, the pension fund's investments saw massive returns. And over the next several decades, there was just a series of, of, I would call them backhanded deals made to essentially take some of the money 
that was in the pension system or should have gone into the pension system uh, to pay for benefits for public employees and was really spent on other stuff that politicians wanted to do. So instead of raising taxes, which Prop 13 had made nearly impossible, city officials decided to take the surplus money and use that, along with municipal bonds sold to investors, to fund government projects. But San Diego became dependent on that pension fund surplus. If the stock market performed poorly, that money wouldn't be there, and the city would still owe its employees their pensions. That became a problem. Once again, Jack McGrory. The system's independent, the retirement system, and they retain an actuary uh, to to value their assets and determine contribution levels uh, But for the employees and, and the city. And every 10 years, they do a review of the system. And they came to me and said, the actuary came to me and said, we're going to, you need to increase your, the city's contribution by 40%. And I said, listen, we're just coming out of recession. There is no way we can afford to uh, increase the the contribution by by 40%. That's just not, not, I can't see the council doing that. So McGrory had to get creative. He worked out a deal with the pension system. Professor Kogan. And of course, the city didn't have any extra money. So the city manager at the time, um, a guy by the name of Jack McGrory, went to the pension system, which is supposed to be independent and independently run, and said, hey, we'll make you a deal. Uh, you let us pay less into the pension system than we owe, and in exchange, we'll boost the benefits for public employees. This is the conflict of interest at the heart of this debacle. The pension board was made up of people who would be receiving pensions. So if the city was promising to give them more money, why do they care how the city would pay for it? Well, in 2001, the recession hit, uh, so the city had less revenue, and also the pension lost a ton of money on the stock market because the recession hit. And so the city was on the hook to make this massive lump sum payment at exactly the time that it basically was broke itself. The city was less than broke. It was now hundreds of millions of dollars in debt to its employees' pensions. but. Very few people knew about this giant hole in the city's coffers. Well, what was happening is the actuaries were being told, shut up, don't tell us about the fact that if you increase benefits and decrease contributions, that's going to create a gap. A mistake I made was that I didn't go and get this locked into um, the charter or uh, an ordinance. Um, And... That was probably a mistake uh, that we that I made in, in, in that plan. Like McGrory said, there was no law that you had to keep the pension system funded. It's a good idea, but there was no law. McGrory left office in 1997, before the pension fund saw its first real losses. But his successor as city manager, Michael Oberwaga, doubled down. And so went back and said, well, you know, we promised you that money, but... You can't afford it, so how about you let us pay even even less, and we'll increase your benefits even more. And the pension system, uh, the pension board, again, primarily the employees of the city, uh, but also some representatives of the city, agreed. This is where the story goes from bad to bonkers. They promised even more in return for even less. Did McGrory ever expect his successors to do that? No. And um, the council approved a, a, a different plan, a new plan. They gave the employees benefits. Uh, they did away with any increase in the city's contribution. That that really caused a serious problem because then the, the funding level, because the new, new benefits weren't paid for. The city of San Diego made the same mistake twice. The plan backfired. 
By the end of 2003, the city's unfunded liability to its pension system was $1.1 billion. Boom. The pension time bomb had exploded. But it got so big that the city started lying about how big the deficit was, the pension deficit, the amount of money that the city was going into the hole. They started lying about it on their financial statements. Well, the city sells bonds. Some of the people that worked inside the city that were whistleblowers, they blew the whistle and told the SEC what was going on. And the SEC stepped in and the Justice Department stepped in. And so they started this massive investigation. And that was taking place just as I was sworn into office. I just want to note that we could not independently verify the anecdote that you're about to hear, but Aguirre is a first-hand witness. And what was crazy is as I was being sworn into office, there were certain of these uh, dishonest people that were actually in my office that I was moving into that were removing all the evidence that the Justice Department and the SEC wanted. So I literally found out about it and had to run over after being sworn in and told them, halt, you know, leave that stuff where it is. The federal government charged the city with securities fraud for its cover-up of the pension scandal. And the city wasn't allowed to issue bonds, effectively cutting it off from its piggy bank. Once again, Councilmember Chris Kate. Our credit rating was revoked. We couldn't issue debts to pay for normal things. And so for a wide period of time, we were not repairing streets, fixing our water pipes or sewer pipes. Essentially, the infrastructure of the city went into shambles. And our pension debts increased immensely, billions of dollars in unfunded liabilities that we're still trying to pay off. The New York Times released an article which dubbed San Diego, quote, Enron by the sea, end quote. A reference to the Texas Energy Company, whose massive fraudulent activities were uncovered just a few years before the pension scandal. The city even took down its self-proclaimed title of America's Finest City from its website. Less than four months into his second term, Mayor Dick Murphy resigned in April of 2005. We wanted to tell you this story because you really can't understand why the Chargers moved without understanding how the pension scandal kneecapped San Diego. Listen, pensions are boring, but that's exactly why this happened. A lot of these decisions were made behind closed doors, and very few people noticed. Until it started affecting the things they actually cared about. Because if all this turmoil wasn't bad enough, it was compounded by its timing. Scott Lewis and Mike Aguirre. The city was starting to come to terms with the fact that it was going to have to give the pension system, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, where in the past it had only done like $10 million or something. And at the same time, the Chargers are saying, we need a new stadium. I mean, one of the one of the ironies is one of the reasons the city of San Diego didn't have more money to put into the Chargers was because it was all being siphoned off by uh, the illegal pension. Support for Bolted is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools. They obsess over their technology developments to provide you the best tools for your grooming experience. We talk about the pro football draft in this episode a lot, and if I was drafting an electric trimmer, you know I'm taking Manscaped Lawnmower 3.0 with the number one pick. Let's talk about the measurables. 7,000 RPM motor that comes with quiet stroke technology, a ceramic blade that'll keep you safe, waterproof, and an LED light for more precise trimming. 
This is a San Diego-based company with a global reach. Manscaped is trusted by over 2 million men worldwide. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code BOLTED at manscaped.com. That's promo code B-O-L-T-E-D at manscaped.com. Want to give a brief moment to talk about our newest sponsor, eBay. Whether rare dead stock or the latest release, find the exact shoe you're looking for. As the original sneaker marketplace, eBay is the place to go to cop that pair you've been eyeing. With eBay's authenticity guarantee, your sneakers are meticulously inspected by independent professional authenticators. A team of experienced sneaker authenticators verify the box, logo, stitching, and dozens of other inspection points. Each sneaker also receives an authenticity guarantee that includes a digital stamp of authenticity. And it also protects sellers with a verified return process. And for sneaker sellers out there, eBay has eliminated selling fees for sneakers over $100, making it free to sell or flip your collection. Go to ebay.com sneakers today. eBay, the world's best destination for discovering great value and unique selection. And now, back to the show. Back in 1998, the Chargers were preparing for their first season with touted prospect Ryan Leaf. But quickly, there were some signs that their new franchise quarterback was a ticking time bomb of his own. AP sports writer, Bernie Wilson. But Leaf came in arrogant as all heck, uh, you know, was not dedicated, uh, spent a little too much time partying, if not a lot of time. NBC7 sports anchor, Derek Togerson. They bring in Peyton Manning and ask him, you're the number one pick in the draft. What do you do? And Manning gave some very Manning-like answer, like, oh, I meet you the fly out, I get in the playbook, I start meeting my coaches, I start meeting my teammates, like, like, a, like a Peyton Manning answer. Ryan Leaf's answer was, I rolled on my buddies on a plane and go to Vegas, which is exactly what he did, and then show up not feeling too great for the press conference. Leaf was never lacking in confidence. He always seemed polished in front of the press, comfortable, even cracking jokes. This was him at that introductory press conference with the Chargers. Didn't want you guys to lose the last couple of games so I could play for you next year, but <laughs> don't worry, that won't ever happen again. So. But as the season drew closer, there was a notable difference for Ryan between Washington State and the Chargers. Well, no one was, there's no guidance to be had. They just assumed I'd do my job well, um, like everybody does to that point, you know? Um, social media didn't exist yet. The internet had just started, if you can believe that. That's how dated this is. Um, um, I don't think they were prepared, as, as was I or anybody else, of uh, the overwhelming negativity that would come from uh, how I'd perform and how I'd behave through the process. This isn't just Ryan's opinion. Here's his former teammate, veteran kicker John Carney. Well, Ryan's a very talented guy, very talented guy, um, probably needed, you know, some better mentorship, uh, maybe some different type of coaching that, that we weren't providing at the time. But even without the mentorship or support that was needed for a 22-year-old rookie quarterback with the weight of the world on his shoulders, Ryan shined in his first two games against the Bills and Oilers, winning them both. Feeling really good, you know. Uh... We just went on the road and beat uh, a Steve McNair quarterback team with Eddie George in that defense, you know, so I, we felt we felt pretty good. He was the first rookie quarterback to win his first two games since John Elway. And Peyton Manning? He was 0-2. 
But just as soon as Leaf's ascendancy began, there was trouble on the horizon. A date in Kansas City with the Chiefs. And we were going to have to go to Arrowhead the next week. Um, unfortunately for me, I ended up in the hospital on Tuesday or Wednesday of that week with what turns out to be a staph infection in my leg. And uh, I'm pumped full of antibiotics and have to deal with a fever and, and everything. And I remember being in the hospital room in bed and, and June Jones bringing over, you know, game film and trying to get me ready to with the game plan and getting ready to play. You know, I didn't have a, a what was a normal week of practice. In fact, I don't don't think I practiced at all that week. But I was I was going to play in that game. Uh, you were not you were not keeping me off that field. Uh, I was adamant about that um, because that's who who we are as players. You know, we're going to play. Leaf played through the infection in the mud and cold, blistering rain of Kansas City, and the result, well. If you look at the stat line, mine was awful. It was the worst stat line you can imagine. One pass completion on 15 attempts, four passing yards, two interceptions, three lost fumbles. You know, we just couldn't hold on to the football. I was turning it over with interceptions or fumbling it out of my hand. It was raining so bad, and, and we got embarrassed, and me in particular. But bad games happen. Rookie quarterbacks take time to adjust to the league, the expectations, the pressure. But this was Ryan's first loss at the professional level. And as someone who self-admittedly had never had real pressure on him, he crumbled. Bernie Wilson and Jay Posner were both on the Chargers beat at the time. And uh, after the game, a TV cameraman was shooting an interview with a player in the adjoining locker and Leaf was ticked off and told him to get away, get out of his, he was too close to his locker for Leaf's comfort. And Jay Posner, then a beat writer at the Indian Tribune, just had it buried in the notes. And so the next day, Mondays are always the post-mortem days in the NFL and we're all around Leaf's locker interviewing him about the terrible, one of the worst games ever. And you, we could tell Leaf was agitated and irritated and ready to go off. And we, the scrum broke up, and, and Leaf said to Posner, hey, stick around, I need to talk to you. I did not want to make this, make what happened about me, and I still don't. But to me, when people think of Ryan Leaf, they think of him yelling at me in the locker room. You don't talk to me, all right? Knock it off! He was, he was upset over something I had written, which was minor. He wanted to try to show that he was, you know, that he was a big-time quarterback and it was his locker, you know, he was going to run the locker room and he was going to tell reporters what to do and all that stuff. And then the next day, he read a piece of paper, He uh, or two days later, I guess, because the next day was an off day. He stood in front of his locker and, like, and read this sort of half-hearted apology. I misdirected my anger after the Kansas City game. I was extremely disappointed in my performance, and I let it show. And then when he was done, he crumpled it up and threw it over his shoulder, like, you know, okay, did I, am I done now? How I dealt with it, period. Just how I dealt with it. If I would have walked into the locker room and said, you know, that was embarrassing. I'm embarrassed. Uh, I'm going to work my ass off so nothing like that ever happens again. Uh, that's on me. Um, I, I think it would have been fine, you know, because people would have talked about the fact that I was in the hospital all week and and loved the accountability for me. But instead, I just got defensive and angry and uh, made it about me 
rather than like we working towards a, a better common goal. And then, you know, I yelled at the reporter and that was what kind of made me a caricature. And I never, I never overcame it. Um, uh, I, I apologized poorly after that because I didn't want to apologize to anybody or him. I felt like he baited me. Uh, and I felt like it, it was his fault, not, not how I behaved. Uh, it was his fault. Um, and so I don't remember a positive thing happening in my time with the chargers. And I would be there for three years after that moment. Boom. Just like with the pension crisis, San Diegans could see their future going up in smoke. Leaf was benched and head coach Kevin Gilbride was fired after the Chargers lost four straight games. Derek Togerson and kicker John Carney. He just wasn't ready to be a 21-year-old millionaire in a city like San Diego. Emotionally, he was not ready for it because he also didn't put the time in to learn how to run an NFL offense. He didn't look at you know, blitz packages. He didn't, he didn't look at any of that stuff. It uh, caused uh, a lot of friction and, and uh, unfortunately, uh, bad play on the football team. And it kind of trickled through a lot of areas on the team. Uh, once things start going south, sometimes they snowball and uh, dug a pretty deep hole for ourselves for a couple of years. In three seasons with the Chargers, Leaf won only four games as a starter. His final season with the team in the year 2000 saw them go a franchise worst 1-15. and 15. All that the Chargers organization had given up to draft Leaf had been in vain. Bobby Bethard, the Chargers general manager who had brought the team to a Super Bowl just a few years before, he retired after that dreadful 2000 season. And Bethard lost his mind. He just absolutely could not communicate to Leaf about what the responsibility was to be a quarterback and and then Leaf got hurt and then Leaf started to act like an ass and it just deteriorated. I mean for many reasons mostly in his head. I, I don't think he was bad physically. I mean he had injury issues. Posner alluded to this but Leaf was hurt a lot. He tore his shoulder prior to the 1999 season. The next year Leaf injured his wrist and the person who was responsible for fixing up Leaf had some demons of his own. Dr. David Chow was the Chargers team doctor for 17 seasons from 1997 through 2013. During that time, Chow was sued dozens of times for malpractice and paid out settlements in at least eight of those cases. He pled guilty to two different drinking and driving charges and had his surgical privileges revoked at two San Diego hospitals. The Chargers team facility was actually raided by the DEA in 2010 when they alleged that Chow had written over a hundred prescriptions for painkillers to himself. And somehow, the Chargers kept him on the team for three more seasons. As mentioned earlier, Dean Spanos agonized over firing people, and it had a cost. Oh, you know, there was a, a misdiagnosis uh, of my right wrist injury. You know, it was... Uh... They didn't diagnose it right. It was a what we call a scaphoid lunate disassociation. Leaf failed a physical because of that wrist injury when he tried to sign with the Cowboys in 2002. I, I, I tried to sue him, I, I believe, um, a while back for malpractice uh, because of the injury, not being diagnosed and, and being cared for appropriately. And of course, then, 
you know, also uh, the opioids that were were uh, prescribed to me during that time too. But uh, you know, I didn't have the I didn't have the the means to to continue a lawsuit or or any of that. But injuries are injuries. I mean, and doctors are flawed, uh, just like everybody else. So I don't I don't blame him. Um, you know, I don't I don't blame any of the anybody else for for my poor performance or my poor behavior or my addiction. Uh, that's that's on me. Leaf has been candid about his struggle with opioids since his playing career ended. He would eventually serve time in prison when his addiction led him to break into a Montana home in search of painkillers. I wish I could blame my poor play and poor behavior on my uh, my addiction to painkillers, but that didn't happen until after my playing career was over. Uh, it was just a substance that I knew worked. I knew it. I knew it worked. It, it killed my pain, exactly what they're made for. And uh, um, I, I just was, um, you know, shocked to see how easy it was or how freely they gave it away at the NFL level. Um, that surprised me. But at that time, you know, I shouldn't say that surprised me. At that level, I just expected that I could get whatever I want because uh, I was more important than everybody else. By the time that Leaf was out of the league in 2002, his relationships with the team that had entrusted their future in him were few and far between. Michael Ricks and I stayed in touch uh, off and on. He was a rookie wide receiver my, my rookie year um, out of Stephen F. Austin. Um, and that's about it. So what's Dr. Chow up to nowadays? This July, Chow was hired as an expert contributor for sports site OutKick. He's worked for several seasons as a medical expert on Sirius XM Radio's football coverage, and his Twitter handle, at ProFootballDoc, has over 170,000 followers. And as for Ryan, he covers Pac-12 football for ESPN, and here on the Believe Podcast Network. He's a spokesperson for Transcend Recovery Community, a network of sober living communities across the U.S., and has even reconnected with the NFL. The Chargers have gradually kind of come back into my life, especially with my work with the NFL Legends community and uh, working with players transitioning into the league and transitioning out because it was like so problematic and difficult for me and it is for a lot of people. Ryan Leaf was unquestionably an NFL bust. He was overconfident and couldn't adapt to the pressure of leading an NFL team. But he was also 22 years old. And as you heard, Many believe he was given little in the way of support by the team which placed all of their hopes on his shoulders. Leaf's story is not just about his failure as a quarterback. It's also about the Chargers' failure as an organization. Leaf now lives in Los Angeles, and when he found out that the team was moving to his new city, he said this. I said thank you to the city of San Diego, um, because you gave me my dream. No matter how it ended up, um, you know, you gave this this young kid from the, from the state of Montana uh, an opportunity to, to live his dream. And, and to me, this, the Chargers will always be the San Diego Chargers to me. My people have a saying, Dainu. In Hebrew, it means it would have been enough. Normally, you use it in a positive context, but let's try something new. If this pension scandal were the extent of political malpractice in San Diego, Dayenu. 
If the Ryan Leaf years were the extent of organizational dysfunction within the Chargers, Dianu, but somehow, the two sides were able to find a way to team up and poison public opinion before anyone was even talking about a new stadium. The ticket guarantee. San Diego was like a lot of American cities in the mid-90s. Its only major stadium, Jack Murphy Stadium, was owned by the city. It's another one of those weird quirks that blurs the line for sports teams between private businesses and public goods. Jack Murphy had housed both the Chargers and the Padres for nearly three decades, and it was beginning to be seen as obsolete. Once again, Jay Posner. After the Chargers went to the Super Bowl, they worked on a stadium expansion deal. The deal was to expand the stadium uh, from about 63, 62, 63,000 seats to just over 70,000. And 70,000 was considered a, the number they needed to keep the NFL happy and keep Super Bowls uh, coming here. Both the Chargers and the Padres were tenants. They paid rent to the city every year for the same space, and they had opposing motivations. The Chargers, coming off their Super Bowl run, wanted a massive, Super Bowl-worthy stadium. The Padres, who averaged less than 15,000 fans a game in 1995, didn't want an already cavernous stadium to feel even more empty. Stephen Shushan was the assistant manager of the stadium from 1985 to 2003. Well, it was like uh, feuding siblings. And so we would, you know, do something for the Padres, you know, make an improvement to the stadium. And the Charger would say, oh, you just did it for the Padres and not for us. And so they did not really get along well. It was just, they, they were very competitive. The city was in a poor bargaining position with the Chargers. The team was good, and the notion of being a consistent Super Bowl host was incredibly popular in San Diego, namely for its perceived boost of the local economy. The city gave in to all of the Chargers' demands. It proved to be costly. The stadium expansion ballooned to $78 million. As part of the deal, the city also gave the Chargers their training facility, too. But most controversial of all was a clause known as the Ticket Guarantee. Here's the man who created it, Jack McGrory. Well, what was happening at the time, and we were very, I was, you know, I was a city manager. I was looking around the country. There, there, were, there, there were just, I think there were five or six major relocations going on. And the cities got in this kind of a crazy competition where they were giving these stadiums, for the most part, rent-free to the teams. Um, they would build them and just give them, uh, give them to the, the team to use without charging any rent at all. The Chargers thought that sounded pretty good. Former stadium manager, Stephen Shushan. At that time, the Chargers came to the city and said, we want three years of free rent. And politically, if the city would agree to that, it would be like, it would be disastrous. So the city manager came up with the ticket guarantee. And, and the compromise was that we would get, do this formula where they would um, get a rent credit if seats, a certain number of seats weren't sold. You have to look at this from McGrory's perspective. He knew that penny-pinching San Diego would skewer the city if it gave the Chargers free rent. So they created this indirect system. Well, the ticket guarantee, you know, as I mentioned, there were 71,000 seats in the stadium. Of those, 60,000 were general admission tickets. Not general mission, but open to the public. So those 60,000 were the basis for the ticket guarantee. So the city basically in the contract said, 
whatever tickets go unsold of those 60,000, they will either purchase or reimburse the Chargers. And it was like, well, of course, why wouldn't we do this? Because look at the Chargers' attendance in the middle of the 90s when they were going to the Super Bowl. Everybody went to games. Of course, it'll always be like this. Well, of course, it's not always like that. There are some compelling arguments on whether or not the city actually saved money by agreeing to the ticket guarantee as opposed to just giving the Chargers free rent. But what was not up for debate were the optics. It looked terrible. Scott Lewis. People looked at the ticket guarantee, this idea that the city would guarantee that the Chargers had a full stadium, and um, and they they thought it was just a, as as insanely corrupt as it gets when when cities are funding these pub these private um, teams. There were a couple big issues with the ticket guarantee. First, this wouldn't have been a problem if the Chargers were selling out their games, but the seven seasons that the ticket guarantee was in effect just so happened to align with the Ryan Leaf era and one of the worst stretches in team history. From 1997 through 2003, the Chargers combined for 35 wins and 77 losses and never once had a season with a winning record. With a guaranteed sellout, the Spanoses had little to no financial incentive to put a competitive team on the field. Second issue was the preseason. Preseason games are notoriously underattended because, well... They don't count, but they did for the ticket guarantee. One preseason game alone in 2002 forced the city to buy 30,000 tickets and cost it $1.6 million. AP sports writer, Bernie Wilson. And during this time, the city tried to get Dean Spanos to renegotiate the ticket guarantee, and he refused, and his famous quote was, a deal's a deal. That's how Dino rolls. You know, you know, you and I can go ask our bank to refinance our mortgage or refinance something, and odds are you're going to get it done. But Dino refused. Uh, that's the leverage that, you know, they always insisted on having. Again, that just created this mistrust, distrust among fans, team, city. By the time the ticket guarantee expired, the city had given the Chargers $36 million for unsold seats. As former Chargers COO Jim Steig explains, this was going to make it impossibly hard for politicians to partner with the Chargers on a new stadium down the road. And then the fact that, you know, 01, 02, 03, the Chargers are going, whatever, 4 and 12, 1 and 15, and stadium's not full, and all you've got running on the paper after every game is how much money the city paid for today to buy the tickets. You know, that type of stuff. Those were negative things, and I think the politicians were afraid of it. The ticket guarantee just looked bad. It felt bad. So often, sports has nothing to do with facts and everything to do with emotion. But this was more than that. Was the ticket guarantee as bad of a deal as it was made out to be? Probably not. But with the city paying the chargers for tickets, it blurred the line about who really owned the team. San Diego taxpayers were paying for the stadium where the chargers played, and for the tickets they couldn't sell. Wouldn't you feel like you owned more than an emotional stake in the team? By being financially decimated by the pension scandal, San Diego could no longer afford to have and retain the Chargers. By being poorly run through the late 90s, culminating in the Ryan Leaf era, the Chargers' awful play could not rally support from the community. And the symptoms that led to both of these events also led to the disastrous ticket guarantee, which killed all trust between everyone in this story. 
As we've established many times, San Diego is not LA, where private financing builds stadiums and arenas outright. All these people were going to have to work together to get a deal done. Would you trust the owners who failed to put a winning product on the field and gathered all the leverage off of it? Or the politicians who plunged the city into financial ruin? These are the questions that San Diegans would have to answer as this story enters its next chapter. The civic war that split the city in two. The fight to keep the Chargers in San Diego. All of that on the next episode of Bolted. The LA market was a credible threat for just about any team in the league to move. If we can win a Super Bowl, we'll get a new stadium and the Chargers will stay here. It is just shock and awe and misdirect and attack. It's the absolute worst loss that I've ever been a part of in, in, in any phase of my life. Dean Spanos and other members of the Los Angeles Chargers organization declined our request for an interview. Bolted was written and edited by me, Rafi Cantor. Our producer is Ben Stein. We're mixed by Jordan Cantor, who also wrote and performed our original music. Additional music by Jordan Crimston and Daniel Birch. Special thanks to Alex Wu, Liz Foley, Ron Cantor, and Nate and Lisa Stein. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.